Open your Bible to John chapter 20. I'm so glad we're going to begin this morning our, our walk through the gospel of John together. I've been looking forward to sharing in this time of study of this wonderful book for you for several months now, and I'm so thankful that we get to begin. And we're going to start in a place that you might find a bit unusual if you're just thinking about it at face value, because we're going to start in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, which happens to be the second to last chapter, and we're going to look at the last two verses of that second to last chapter, and that's going to be where we launch our look in the book of John. And to really understand why that's true, I'm going to bring back something for you that might, it might go, I might give you a little PTSD. It, it has that effect for me because whenever you think about English growing up and surviving your senior English paper and then going off to professors in college, and I remember my freshman college, my, my freshman English teacher she made it her ambition to just completely obliterate any self-confidence that you know anything so she could build you back up. And she was very successful in doing that in my life. And it was all based on this concept that apparently I really missed going up, the importance of a good thesis statement in your writing, that any good essay or any good book is going to be developed and is going to be built around an understanding of a really strong thesis statement. In fact, I went to work on my master's, and then I started my doctorate, and I'll always remember when I sat down with what I thought was the best paper I had ever written, and my supervisor looked at me and said, Jeff, you know, what you wrote here is okay, but just be aware that this does not meet the standard, and that which I thought was the best thing I had ever written, he's telling me, you've got to do much better than this if you're going to survive this program. I was devastated. I went home, and I'm like, Allie, I've got to quit now. And she said, you will not do that. Just stick yourself, just stick to it. You'll make your way through. But a thesis statement is important. You've got to be able to do it if you're going to ever be successful in writing a good essay. And there's some things that you just have to have that are a part of every good thesis statement if you're going to be successful. And one of the first things is to understand that that singular sentence is the manager of your paper. It's going to set the course of everything that you do. And you really, really do need that because if you're not careful, you can lose your way really fast. I, I don't know if, if this makes sense to you, but yesterday I'm on my way home from Louisville, Kentucky. One of a dear saints of the Lord died. I'd promised her years ago I'd preach her funeral. I drove up to Louisville on Friday, drove back yesterday, fought through the wind and the awful awful snow. My car looks terrible. I went to breakfast this morning. This guy looked at me and said, you, you came from up north, didn't you? And he looked at all the salt and grime on my car. I was like, absolutely I did. But I came down, and on my way back down, whenever I drive home from Louisville after going and spending some time at Southern or back to where I lived for so long, I'll come down and I'll go I-25 from Nashville over to Chattanooga. And on the way down, when you drive through those mountains, have y'all ever been down there and seen them? There's all these runaway truck ramps that are going off on the side. And every time I see one of those runaway truck ramps, I don't know why it is I have to fight the urge to just try it out. Like, I just want it. 
And it doesn't surprise you when you say, yeah, you take runaway truck ramps every single Sunday. It's what we struggle with, Pastor. Because that's what happens if you venture off into a way that gets you off the beaten path. And that's the importance of a good thesis statement. It keeps your argument focused, your paper focused, so you don't take a runaway truck path and chase a rabbit that you ought not to chase. It never ends well. So a good thesis statement is your manager. It's also very specific. It's got to say something that can't be too general or you have totally not accomplished what you aim to do. So it's got to be specific. And another thing that's true of a good thesis statement is that it's got to stand for something. You can't just say something neutral. You can't just give a fact. You've got to take a position and stand up and support and defend that position. And if you've got those qualities in a thesis statement, You've got a pretty good working thesis statement, and you can get off and hopefully pass that essay or whatever it is that you've got. Moms and dads, you're welcome, all right? I've given your kids something that hopefully that they'll find helpful to them. But when you start the study of the book of John, and you read this book, when you're looking for John's thesis statement, you've got to wait a minute. In fact, it's not until you get close to the end of the book that you finally discover what that thesis statement truly is. Because in John 19.35, John almost gives it to us. After he's given us this wonderful book that starts with these miraculous signs of Jesus and moves into the content of his ministry, he moves into then the significance of the passion, his crucifixion. And then at the end of his chapter, chapter 20, that describes the detail of Jesus' crucifixion, John promises toward the end of that chapter 19 that everything that he has recounted about Jesus' death is all true. And he has recorded it for the primary purpose that the readers of the book of John would believe. So he almost gives us the thesis statement, but he's not quite ready to do it yet. Because after the crucifixion, he's still got a chapter that tells us all about the resurrection. And the resurrection is central to our faith. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, without the resurrection, our faith and our preaching is in vain. We need the resurrection. So Paul, or so John, when he's giving us the gospel of John, he waits until he has explained to us the significance of the resurrection. And then at the very perfect place, He gives us his thesis statement, and it's found right here. Now, I'm going to read it in a moment. Before we do, then you're like, well, why then does he keep going? It seems like he's told us everything. Well, then you come to chapter 21. Is there an addendum to the end of the book? Is there for a reason? It shows us why it was such a challenge, the last verse of chapter 21, why it was hard to write a good, successful thesis statement about the ministry of Jesus. John says in chapter 21, verse 25, there are many other things Jesus did, and if I were to write them all down, the world itself could not contain all the books that would then have to be written. But he has managed his statement well. He's gotten specific about why he has written. He's given us something to stand upon, the central premise that is necessary for every image bearer to be right with God He tells us all of that in the thesis statement in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 30. And listen to what he says. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, 
which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the thesis. It's the thesis statement of this book. It's the thesis statement that is so necessary if we're going to be right with God and know God to understand what being a Christian really entails. And when we get that thesis statement, I want you to understand what we have here. God inspires John to write this gospel so that we would understand it, that we would accept it, and that we would believe. And that's what he tells us right here in these two verses. Now, I will tell you that I'm really looking forward to starting our walk through the book of John next week, and we're going to begin where you probably expected this morning to begin in John chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1 reads similar to Genesis, as we're going to see next week. Genesis starts in chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the first book of the Bible starts with the beginning, so does John as we learned that in the beginning was, and John uses this brilliant word to describe the significance, the significance of Christ. In the Greek, is the word logos. It means the word. And when we read the word in John's gospel, we're going to see that John is telling us about the eternality of Jesus, the humanity of the word as it became flesh, the divinity of Jesus as the Son of God, all of that is captured in Jesus being the Lagos, the Word. And after explaining the role of another man named John, don't get them confused. John chapter 1 talks about another John, not the beloved disciple who wrote the book, but John who is known as the baptizer, the cousin of Jesus, the one who came before him to ready the world for the Messiah's coming. John had a beautiful ministry out in the wilderness, that if I could summarize his ministry, what John does for Jesus is he's like the farmer who's readying the field and plowing it up, getting it ready for the soil and the harvest that's going to come. He has a necessary ministry that gets everything ready. And then, as it describes John's role, we're going to see in chapter 1, Jesus calls his first four disciples. Well, I want to talk for a moment about the last that we find called by Jesus in John chapter 1. A man by the name of Nathaniel, a man who lived with such integrity, said Jesus, who by the way, Jesus is the one who knew what was in the heart of every man. And Jesus looks at Nathaniel, who is soon to follow him, and he says of Nathaniel, he is a man without any deceit. Well, Philip has gone to Nathaniel, and he told him that Jesus has been found, the Messiah, the one that Moses and all the prophets wrote about. He's here, the promised one. He has arrived. And you can expect when Nathaniel gets that word from his friend Philip, he's a little nervous. Takes him a second to really want to believe it. He's got some questions first before he's going to actually accept this truth. He's not yet convinced. So when he's with Jesus, Nathaniel looks at Jesus and asks him a question. How do you know me? And Jesus tells him something. For you or I, it might seem insignificant. He said, I know you because you are under the fig tree 
and I saw you. Well, for us, we read that and we're like, what does that really mean? It meant everything to Nathaniel. Because he knew when Jesus shared this news to him, he knew there was not another living soul that knew he had spent time there under that fig tree. He knew the only way Jesus had known this truth would be that he was in his omniscience given this knowledge. It captivated, it changed Nathaniel's heart. He spoke to Nathaniel in a way that was very specific and personal to Nathaniel. And when he understood then the fullness of who Christ was, Nathaniel responds in chapter 1, Rabbi, which means teacher, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That encounter with Jesus changed everything about Nathaniel. And in the same way, when we encounter Jesus in a similarly personal way, it changes everything about us. The gospel's not different, but the way that Jesus comes to us as he came to Nathaniel under a fig tree, if you know Christ personally, we all have that story. So he was forever changed by this encounter with Christ. We know that only the Father could have made this happen because Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Nathaniel has been drawn, and now he has been forever changed. And he declares that Jesus is indeed everything that Philip said he was, the Messiah, the Son of God. Here's something we learn about that supports the thesis statement. The statement that John has written these things so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God is this. Even though we live in a culture that might say otherwise, saving faith, according to what the Bible teaches, is clearly defined. It's clearly defined. Saving faith hinges on the importance of this key word in John chapter 20, belief. But just because you've accepted this key word belief and understood it, you must still proceed with caution because the current culture that we live in talks a whole lot about believing, but the culture's thesis statement is much different than the thesis statement of the Gospel of John. In fact, they don't even go together because our culture isn't about believing in an object or believing in a particular person. According to the culture of the day, it really doesn't matter who or what you believe in just as long as you believe in something. It's really about believing in belief however you want to define it. David Platt writes of this challenge by identifying and giving us an illustration of one of the leading advocates of this way of thinking who's giving forth this message of a different gospel. Her name is Oprah Winfrey. You might have heard of her. I remember I learned of Oprah more recently when I went on a trip with Allie, we were down in Grand Cayman on an anniversary time. It was a special time, just the two of us, and we were taking a, a, a tour with a jet ski tour guide. That's something different. I mean, it was pretty amazing. I, 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 saw, I saw some of you there. Ted, you were on that. I'm just kidding. I wish you were. It would have been great. But I was with Allie, and we were on this jet ski, and we were taking our time around this island down in the bottom part of Florida. It was beautiful. And we rounded a corner, and they said, and there, on the island, that is where Oprah Winfrey has a house. That's her house. And if you look close to this, don't even try to look, though. She's not been there for years. And I said, well, if she's not been there for years, how do you know that it's still 
her house. But, but, but that was the most recent time. But Oprah Winfrey, she's a, she's a pretty big deal. One time she had an atheist on her show, and they were talking about faith and belief. And the atheist described her understanding as a sense of wonder that she feels every time she stands at the edge of an ocean. And Oprah surprisingly, to me, corrected her. And this is what Oprah responded with. I think if you believe in the awe and the wonder and the mystery, then that is what God is, that he's not a bearded guy in the sky. He's not a bearded guy in the sky. Well, I I will tell you that on that part of what Oprah said, I can agree. God is not a bearded guy in the sky. In fact, I don't think Jesus ever claimed to be a bearded guy in the sky. In John chapter 1, the Jesus we encounter is the one who came from Nazareth, who not only omnisciently knew that Nathanael had been under the fig tree and knew what was in his heart and declared him to be a man without any deceit, he's also the man who later on in John chapter 4 knows that Samaritan woman that he goes out of his way because he loves her so much that he goes to her and he's able to then tell her everything she ever did, showing that he truly is the Messiah, the promised one. He is asked by her, are you him? And she says, it is I. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the one who fulfills everything that the Bible says, all the promises that God has made for his people. The promise that started in John chapter 3 or Genesis 3 after the fall of man when mankind and, and God's relationship was broken. Christ fixes what was broken. He always has fixed that which was completely severed. Christ is the one who brings justice to everything in this world that is unjust. All things he will make new. Jesus is the focal point, and saving faith is well-defined. We also learn from this thesis statement from John, that saving faith, it requires trust. See what it says next? These things are written that you may, and here's the Greek, the, there you go, I will one day not be an adolescent. Um, there's the Greek word that says you will believe, pistuo is the Greek word, there's a participle connected to it, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that by believing, a participle that is also acts like a verb and an adjective kind of put together by believing, or if it's a, if you're trying to describe someone who's a person of faith, a believing person is that way that that is used as an adjective too. Both of those are the word pistuo, and that's a key word if we're going to understand John's thesis. So saving faith, not only is it well-defined, saving faith according to what he says here with the word believe, it requires trust. And this is a verb. This is a participle that also acts as a describing word, a believing person. This is a verb. It means to to have trust. It's something that you actively have. It's an active word. So when we're understanding this faith, please understand what it truly means. And the best way to describe it for you is to give you an illustration. When When I was in high school, I loved rock climbing. I did it for about two years. I had a wonderful youth pastor that loved to take us rock climbing. We would go over to a great place at Mount at Chiha Mountain, the highest 
it's an impressive, the highest place in the state of Alabama. It's like five feet over sea level. No, it's a little higher than that. But, but there's a big rock at Chee Hall that we would go to Chee Hall. It was beautiful. And we would set up our gear. And so he would take a rope and we would hook up our rope. And as he would hook up the rope, he would, I would have to check it with him, make sure it wasn't frayed. I don't know why it really mattered, if the rope was frayed or not. You can reach your own conclusions. But we had to make sure it was safe. So then we, we, we got that rope, and then he would always affirm and tell me every time. I guess it made him feel good. You know that a Volkswagen um, bug could be supported if we hooked one of those up to this rope. It would hold it. And we're like, yeah, okay, if that's what you want me to believe. So we'd hook up the rope for the rock climbing time, and then we would get in the harness, and we'd put on our check our gear, make sure all that worked well. And then the belayer would be at the bottom of the mountain. So if we were rappelling or if we were rock climbing, the belayer would be at the bottom to be able to protect the person from falling to their death. You know, I'm so glad I rock climbed back then. I don't do it anymore because now we have smartphones. You know, now there's laws against not looking at your phone while you're driving, but there's not laws against looking at your phone while you're belaying. So it would be terrifying to think of someone, hey, look at this score, and then, you know, that's all she wrote. So, so, so but, but I was thinking about that time rock climbing, and this is how it relates to faith and trust. When you step off that mountain, you've got to believe that rope is going to do everything that rope is intended to do, and that you are harnessed in the appropriate way, that the gear that is keeping you connected to that rope is what it should be, and the person down at the bottom belaying you, making sure you're not going to fall, is paying attention to what's going to happen. You are putting your total faith into that whole effort as you step off that rock onto the side of the face of that rock, and you stand suspended, and then you're able to have a good time. Here's the question about faith for you. Do you have faith in Jesus for all of your eternity, the way I described the faith that I put in the rope and in the gear and in the belay? Do you understand what it means to fully trust him with every bit of your life completely in that way? You see, faith is not just an an understanding of the facts of who Christ is. And it's not just saying, not only do I understand the facts, but okay, I believe that enough to say, yes, he is the Son of God. But then are you willing to trust every ounce of your life and your eternity and place it into Jesus? John has written these things so that our faith is well-defined, but also so that we would trust in Jesus in a saving faith kind of way. And that's why he does this. That's why he writes believe, and it's the importance of the word throughout the book. Saving faith requires trust. But then saving faith is also the only way unto eternal life. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing... You may have life in his name. This whole book, as we go through it, is a book about life. And in a time and in an era that some of us are saying, we're just doing our best just to survive. We're looking forward to the day that the clouds of this pandemic finally clear and life can resume in some sense of normalcy. We're just waiting for that day and we're going to sit back and just wait, trusting it. Can I tell you how we need this word about life as much as we ever have? It's all through the book. John chapter 1 verse 4, in him was life and life is the light of men. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
John chapter 5, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John eleven twenty five. when Jesus is with his Martha, his friend, who's mourning the loss of Lazarus, and he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, looks at Martha in her grief and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. John 14, verse 6, when Jesus is comforting his disciples, he tells them, the exclusivity of the gospel is this, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There is no other way to the Father except through me. So life is completely connected to Christ. If you do not have that connection with Christ, you do not have life. John 15 explains it this way. Don't think it's also something you wait until you get to go to heaven and enjoy one day. Yesterday I preached the funeral. I shared with you one of the most precious godly women who's impacted my life in ways I can never even hope to describe. But her life began the moment that she passed from death to life and she trusted in Jesus as Savior and started living her life for his glory. And that's true of all of us in this life. Jesus says in John 15, I'm the vine and you are the branches. We get our nourishment. We get everything we need from being in connection with the vine. Without the vine, we have no life. In Christ who is the vine, we have life. So this is going to be a book about life. So we need it. So as we start this study, now that you know the thesis, I just want to ask you to go ahead and consider praying. First, is there someone in your life who does not have life that needs to come and to hear the life that is offered in the gospel of John so that they too can pass from death to life and trust in Jesus and believe in him, completely trusting him for their eternity? Is there anyone in your life who needs to be invited over the course of the next several weeks? Won't you please just pray that they will come with you? So we can grow together and hear this gospel proclaimed because every single verse in the gospel of John has Jesus all over it. But for all of us here, John has written these things so that those without life can also have it, but he's also written these things for us to continue in the faith that we believe in. So we all need this life. And so we're going to be encouraged and buoyed up every time we read about it and we understand it even more deeply as we walk through the Gospel of John together. What a thesis statement. It's going to manage everything that we talk about. It is so specific. In Him, there's life. Believe in Him, you have life. It's so clear. And also, it's something of which you've got to be willing to take a stand. Because many will cry out to him, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. But if you acknowledge him before men, you'll acknowledge him before your, he'll acknowledge you before his Father. If you deny him before men, you won't be acknowledged by him before the Father. Have you ever claimed this statement? 
to be the very bedrock of your life that's changed everything about you. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes as we move into this time of an invitation. I just hope that if you have not ever found life before today, that today in Christ you will have found life. He is the Word. He has always been. He loved us so much that the Word became flesh. All the wonderful, miraculous signs that we are going to read about in the book of John just affirms the fact that He is everything that He claims to be. He has a perfect relationship with the Father. You can know the Father through knowing the Son. It's the only way to the Father. It's all built around the finished work that He accomplished when He, after living a perfect life, died on a cross and was raised from the dead. Because He has victory over death, since He is the one who gives life, these things have been written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, we would have life in His name. If you need life right now, once you understand that Christ is the source, you can't find it anywhere else. If you'll just go to Him and confess how much you need Him, ask Him to forgive you of all of your sin, the wickedness and the stuff that we have done that has left us separated from him but he came that we might have life he became sin for us so that we could then get that exchange and get his righteousness to know him if for the first time in your life you're willing to confess that he's lord and believe in your heart god raised him from the dead today saving faith can change everything about you but all of us need life we all need to live each day, not just surviving, but anchored and nourished by Christ who is the vine. We are his branches. And I hope right now you'll just pray, Lord, I just anticipate you to do something in my life as we study the book of John that maybe you have never done. I want to understand you more deeply, more richly, more accurately, more fully. More than ever, church, I think what we need is to understand the clarity of what the gospel means. Oh, God, let us understand with clarity who you are and your significance and what that means, what the gospel is, not just so that I can be with you forever in heaven, that I can enjoy the fullness of life here. He came to give us life and life more abundantly. John 10, 10, we're going to read all about it. This enemy steals, kills, and destroys, but he gives you life. If you need life today, just pray, oh God, may I just know you more fully and richly and may you just do a work in my life as I study your word. To know the Word. Father, I thank you so much for your truth. Father, I pray that you will have your way with us and transform us by your truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen.